0: I invite you to turn one more time to 2 Thessalonians. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 11. To this end also we pray for you always, that our God will count you worthy of your calling, and fulfill every desire for goodness and the work of faith with power. So that the name of our Lord Jesus will be glorified in you, and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now Father, I thank you for your word that you have for us this morning. It's so good to to settle into truth, and just to hear truth spoken. And, and to read truth from the page, and to experience truth in the person of Jesus Christ. It's good, Father, to be in this place, because You are here, and because, Lord Jesus, You promised to be here among us when we gather together in Your name, and so we have. We ask only that Your Holy Spirit be our teacher now, our guide through Your Word, that we might be privileged, Lord, to mine more riches from the page. But also, Father, to be affected in our thinking, in your promises, and yes, Lord, in our behavior, even as we consider these things. In Jesus' name, Amen. Well, the 19th century Scottish expositor... Alexander McLaren said, It is a poor love that cannot express itself in prayer. It is an earthly love which desires for its objects anything less than the highest of blessings. Prayer is an act of provisional love. That is a love that seeks to bless another. To see another person provided for. To see someone else cared for with, as Paul wrote in Ephesians one three, every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies in Christ. You know, sometimes we can get caught up praying for wants and needs and desires, even for each other. We can look at brothers and sisters in Christ and we can offer up prayers for their needs or their hurts or their heartaches. You ever just pray blessings on people? You ever just look around and, and pray that the Lord would bless a brother, a sister, a wife, A husband with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. Again, McLaren said, It is a poor love that cannot express itself in prayer. It is an earthly love which desires for its objects anything less than the highest of blessings. You see, that's how God blesses. With the highest of blessings. That's God's desire. It's in His very nature, His goodness. And so that's how those who love as He loves pray for each other. I'd like you to keep your finger in 2 Thessalonians and turn over to the Gospel of Luke. In verse 1, we're told that it happened that while Jesus was praying in a certain place, he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John also taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, give us each day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins, for we also, ourselves, also forgive everyone who is indebted to us, and lead us not into temptation." Now, verses 2 through 4 of Luke 11 is the short version of what the church has long referred to as the Lord's Prayer. You'll find the long version, the version that you may have memorized, or if you grew up going to church, you may have spoken, Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 through 13. That's the long version. This is the Reader's Digest version. And often I find myself praying the Lord's Prayer. I don't know if you do this, but when I don't know what to pray or when I find myself desiring to enter into God's presence, but, but, but lacking words, I'll start with the Lord's Prayer. Not as a prayer by rote, uh, not as a tradition, really as a trajectory for the rest of my prayer. As a launch pad, as it were. Because I do not believe Jesus was giving us a robotic repetition. I don't think he was giving us a liturgy here. If you read through this prayer, it's so interesting. He he walks it out, and, and it's really more of a pattern for prayer. Uh, a subject matter, a line-by-line line idea of where we can and should go in our prayers. Don't pray the Lord's Prayer as a liturgy unless your heart is in it. Because if the heart ain't in it, don't pray it. It's not going to reach heaven. But to pray this prayer and to think the way Jesus thought, and to hear His intent and His heart. This is divine direction for prayer. This is Jesus' way of, of steering our prayers and offering a prayerful outline. In fact, if you look at it, Father, hallowed be Your name. That's praise. Great way to begin a prayer. Your kingdom come. Well, that's priority. What's the priority of Your life? Give us each day our daily bread. That's praying for our portion. Forgive us our sins, that's penitence, for we ourselves also forgive everyone who is indebted to us. Well, that's pardon. And lead us not into temptation. Protection. You can break it down however you want, but as Jesus taught his disciples to pray, and that's what he was doing, he's giving them a method, a mannerism, a way to approach the Father and to order our prayers. And then following this, what I really wanted to point out to you here is in verse 5, he goes on to give a parable of prayer, what you might call a prayerable. Okay, Verse 5, suppose one of you has a friend and goes to him at midnight and says to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has come to me from a journey, and I have set nothing, I have nothing to set before him. And from inside he answers and says, Do not bother me! door's already been shut. My children are in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give him anything because he's his friend, yet because of his persistence, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. It's a great parable because it portrays the concept of persistent prayer. And this parable is also a great description of what we so often see baked in To the letters of Paul. Go back to 2 Thessalonians. I saw something in 2 Thessalonians I didn't expect to see. Looking at all the prophecies, and it's rich with prophecy as we've been talking about. Had a great time looking at prophecy questions and answers on Wednesday night. And the last few weeks talking about the rapture of the church and, and how it works prophetically. And what was shared ahead of time. And what is coming for us. And sometimes you can get so enamored by these things as you study these letters, and especially First and 2 Thessalonians, you can get so excited by prophecy, you can miss some of the rich nuggets that are here. And one of them is simply this. Paul, as he writes his letters, is the persistent friend. He's like the persistent friend asking, seeking, and knocking on heaven's door. We see this throughout his letters. He'll write and then all of a sudden he'll stop and he'll pray. Maybe a line two, three, and then he'll go right back to teaching or doctrine. But then he'll pray again and his letters are filled with this, especially what we see in this very short letter of 2 Thessalonians. I don't know if you've caught this or noticed this, but Paul prays throughout this letter literally for loaves of bread to share with his friends who are on a journey. So Jesus' parable, I want to use as as a format, really, for this. That you think about Paul knocking on the door of a friend late at night. The father's in the house. And he's saying, please, I need bread for my friends who are traveling. His friends, in this case, the church of Thessalonica. Or, in our case, all of us on this journey traveling and we need bread to journey on. We need strength for the day. So Paul's at the door and he is knocking for loaves of bread and in this letter we find four prayers for several loaves of bread. Healthy, fiber rich, protein packed, gluten free (laughs) loaves of bread that Paul prays for. And they are as fresh today as when Paul first requested them. Again, Alexander McLaren said, A striking characteristic of 2 Thessalonians is the frequent gushes of short prayer for the people. With which Paul turns aside from the main current of his thoughts. Because, as we began, it is a poor love that cannot express itself in prayer. So before we close out 2 Thessalonians, I simply want to share these prayers this morning. Four prayers, and let's look at each one of them. Beginning again in verse 11 of chapter 1, the first prayer. To this end also, we pray for you always. That our God will count you worthy of your calling. And fulfill every desire for goodness and the work of faith with power, so that the name of our Lord Jesus will be glorified in you and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. The apostle first here prays for what we could easily call the bread of satisfaction. The bread of satisfaction. This is a, a dense, heavy, uh, rich bread, dense in its ingredients. And in its nutrients. But note the prayerful request from start to finish. Paul petitions, Paul requests, he prays for a life that is pleasing to God and satisfying to the saint. That's why I call it the bread of satisfaction that he is praying for here. Pleasing to God, satisfying to the saint. He begins saying, we pray that our God will count you worthy of your calling. How's your worthiness going? Do you feel worthy of your calling? Now if you do, pause for a moment and remember who called you. Remember the heights of His glory, the awesomeness of God, how amazing, how remarkable, how eternal, how everlasting He is. And in comparison, are you worthy to be called by Him? That Greek phrase, count you worthy, is from the root word axios. Axios. It means literally to be valued by weight. Are you worth your weight to the Father? I love asking the question because what I see is people looking around going... <laughs> None of us feel that. But God, Paul prays that, that he would count us worthy. That God would count valued by weight. Having, literally having the same weight of value as something else on a scale. So, for example, are you worth your weight in gold? Or are you worth your weight in grain? And the way they would value things, the valuation of things, especially in the marketplace, was based on how it was weighed. An amount of grain weighed against some other valuable thing. And they could say, okay, this is worth about so much. This is your value. We would say today, and I love this, what's your net worth? What is your net worth? We measure that in cold, hard cash. I will never forget the document signing for my first house. We got in by the skin of our teeth. We, with help from my dad, put a little less than 8%, I think it was, down. And our loan was a variable interest rate. I was scared to death. I remember sitting there with all the loan documents out in the living room of the house that we were renting. My dad's sitting beside me and I'm looking over these documents and the question that kept coming up was what is your net worth? i <laughs> <What>? like, <laughs> I married a cute girl. <laughs> well, what is my net worth? How, how can you measure that? They wanted to know what did I have in the bank? What, what, what kind of investments had I made? What kind of collateral would I have? My dad had to co-sign with me because I had zero net worth. Zero. Do you know how that made me feel? Perhaps you do. When you look down on paper and go, wow, based on the net worth, the value system of this world, I am worth nothing. And I felt devalued. There's a better way. There is a better value, and listen, understand this, a value against which every human life will be weighed, will be measured. You see, you're on one side of the scale, and Jesus is on the other. Jesus is how you measure your weight, your value in the Lord. Revelation chapter 5, verse 11. Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. Hey, hint, it's the church. Gathered there worshiping Jesus. John looked ahead and saw that. In Revelation 5.12, they're saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Worthy is the Lamb. There's your value. The value against which everything else must be measured. Your life and my life are measured against the value of Jesus Christ. But what's marvelous about the way God measures, the way God does the scale, is He doesn't value your works against the works of Jesus. You would never add up. Your net worth would be zero. What He does is Jesus steps on the scale next to you. That if you put your faith in Jesus Christ, and Christ is in you, you are then weighed worthy. Found worthy in Him. Not because of you, but because of Him. Now His weight is your weight. His worth is your worth. That's the promise of the cross. That is the wonder of salvation. I no longer walk around thinking I'm just not good enough or I am good enough. Both are lies. No. I am only good in Jesus Christ as He is in me. Every person will be weighed against God's perfection. And so we can choose to accept Christ's value as our own, or we can reject His value for our own. And then you are on your own. And in that last case, no one will ever measure up. In the first case, accepting Jesus' value for my value, 2 Thessalonians 2.14 says, It was for this He called you through our Gospel, that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's your worth. There is your value. Jesus. Jesus is the value. Christ alone is worthy. And we are invited to be counted as worthy in Him. And so Paul prays that. We pray that our God will count you worthy of your calling. And He will if your calling is in Jesus and to Jesus. If your faith is in Him. And he continues praying that that God would be fulfilling every desire for goodness and the work of faith with power. Hey, do you desire goodness? Do you long to be good? Desiring goodness, interesting, it's a fruit of the Spirit. Goodness is a fruit of the Spirit. It's what the Holy Spirit then cultivates in your life. So your value is because of Jesus. Your goodness is Him working in you. His Spirit doing what He does. And you could call that aspect, that's the whole grain that gets into the bread of satisfaction. The goodness. It speaks of the dynamic usefulness of those who trust in His Spirit and His power. Note that He says this, fulfilling every desire for goodness and the work of faith with power so goodness is what that intrinsic goodness of God that the Spirit works in you but then the work of faith with power, the work of faith with power it's what makes you useful to the Lord. It's what Paul calls in Ephesians 1:19 the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe in according accordance with according the working of the strength of his might. His power, his work in you, in me, Paul prays for this. Now hold that thought on work and we'll come back to it. This goodness and this power is for one reason, no continuing. he says, so that, so that the name of our Lord Jesus will be glorified in you and you in him, which is again the true weight of our value, that Jesus will be glorified. In you, and I love this, and you in Him, that's remarkable. You'll be glorified because He's glorified. You'll be honored because He's honored. His glory gets on you, gets on me. That's the weight of our value. Again, the presence of Jesus in our lives. And look back at what Paul said in verse 10. When He comes to be glorified in His saints on that day. I mean, wow. We see Things like, soon and very soon, I'll see you, I'll be with you, I'll, I'll be in your presence. We think about His coming and what that experience will be like for us. But my friends, do you realize the weight of His glory will be on us and in us? That for the first time in your life, you won't wonder if you're worth something? You'll know? You'll experience, you will have the joy, the satisfaction of Jesus in you. How is that even possible? Well, he prays according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. So I call this first prayer a prayer for the bread of satisfaction. And if you read over it and think through this prayer, and even meditate on it, in fact, I would encourage you to take these four prayers we're going to look at and meditate on them through the week. Because in this first prayer, the idea of satisfaction, my friends, it is way beyond quality of life right now. Isaiah 55, verse 2, Why do you spend money for what is not bread? and your wages for what does not satisfy. Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in abundance. The satisfaction that comes by walking with Jesus, it is now and it is then. A life satisfied because because we are pleasing to God. The second request for bread here in the letter, it's the second prayer, is over in chapter 2, verse 16. Turn over there. Where Paul again breaks away from the teaching and he says, Now may our Lord Jesus Christ Himself and God our Father who has loved us and has given us eternal comfort and good hope by grace. Comfort and strengthen your hearts in every good work and word. Note that he says this, he has loved and he has given The Lord who has loved us and given us. So, sounds like past tense. It's the only way they can translate it. It's the Aorist tense, which is often translated past tense, but Aorist is every tense. I mean, it means always, ongoing. It happened in the past. It's happening right now. It will happen in the future. That is, He loved us. He loves us. He will love us. He has given us this hope. He gives us this hope. He will continue to give us this hope. This is this ongoing amazing reality of the love and the generosity of Jesus Christ talking about what is done, what is being done, and what is continually done. And note this, before Paul asks for anything in this prayer, God's love and grace comes first. It's always that way. Love is first. Grace is first poured out. Then blessing comes. Then bread is provided. And what Paul actually asked for in this prayer is comfort and strength of heart in every good work and word. Now I want you to think of this bread that he asks for, that he requests of the Father late at night. Every good work and word, it's a marbled bread. It's got two aspects to it. It is the bread of good work and word. Why does he break that down? Listen. First of all, the bread of good work recalls the work of faith and power that he prayed in the first prayer. Paul is very clear about this. The Christian life is not a life of grace that sits on the couch. It is a life that is at work. It is a life that works hard. It is a life that that is constant. Alexander McLaren, I mentioned him earlier, we, we quoted him. 19th century Scottish preacher. And he is known as one of the greats. In fact, I have up in my office um, the expositions of Alexander McLaren through the scriptures. And it's remarkable. I always look back at these guys, 18th, 19th century guys who, who wrote and studied things. And I'm like, where do they have their resources? They don't have half the resources that I have. And yet, by the Spirit of God and by the Word of God, they would study so hard. Alexander McLaren was known to turn down every opportunity to speak anywhere but his local church. He only wanted to speak to his flock. To be at home at all times, always preaching the Word. He was huge on preaching the Word. And it was said that Alexander McLaren spent 50 to 60 hours on every sermon. I can't even imagine that. On a, on a heavy week for me when I'm really studying to try and grasp the prophecy, 15 or 20 hours on a teaching. And that would be immersive. 50 or 60 hours that he might bring the Word of God. And McLaren was an expositor. He just went verse by verse and pulled the truth out of the text. Remarkable. Hard work. Willing to roll up his sleeves and work for the Gospel. Are you willing to work for God or are you sitting back in grace? Paul talks about grace. It is grace that that saves us. It is the weight of Jesus that is our worth and our value. Yes, we don't work for our salvation, but we work in our salvation. We work out in our salvation. We are called to work hard for this, having already gained it, having already received. That doesn't work so well in the workplace if you get your paycheck first and then you're told to work. Have you noticed how we do it? You work two weeks, then you get paid That way we can evaluate, did you work enough? And if you didn't put the hours in, you don't get as much pay. But God flips the whole thing. Here's your grace, here's your pay, here's your salvation. Now get to work. Because He doesn't want the pay to get in the way. If anything, it motivates us to the work of the Gospel. We have such a twisted view of work in our world. Really, you could put it this way, it's a cursed view of work. And it was a curse that came down at the very beginning. Genesis chapter 3, verse 17. We looked at this recently, I believe, but the Lord said to Adam, Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and it does. Man, that's annoying in my backyard. Thorns and thistles. And you will eat the plants of the field. Every time I rip out thistles, I think of Adam. I do. Thanks a lot, bro. Thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By Note this, by the sweat of your face you will eat bread. That's the kind of bread that humanity offers you. It's only the bread you can get by the sweat of your brow. Till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. It's a curse. But listen, when Paul prays here that He will strengthen and comfort our hearts in every good work. He is not praying for sweaty bread. He's not praying for the bread of your efforts. You know, the bread of your labor. No, the good work of Jesus Christ does not come by stress and weariness. It comes by comfort and strength. In quietness and trust is your salvation. In repentance and rest, you will find strength. Isaiah 30 verse 15 tells us. It's a completely different paradigm to work in the Lord Jesus. is to work from a place of restful, comforting strength. It doesn't mean you won't be tired. It doesn't mean you won't be exhausted. But there is a filling of the Lord that is remarkable. You can spend all day, and I I do this, you know, from time to time, all day out working the yard and pulling the weeds and trying to do that. And at the end of the day, you're hot, you're sweaty, you're dirty, and there's a little satisfaction because you got something done. You can look back over the yard and go, oh, okay, good. That was a good day. You go take a shower and you get cleaned up and you look back out of the yard again just one more time because you know that tomorrow all the weeds will be back. And the is going to be grown over again, and you're going to have to go through the same process again. Not so, not so with the work of God. There's an amazing satisfaction when you can spend the whole day in the Word talking about Jesus, seeing someone saved. by the way, Cheryl, I've got to share this. i got to boast on her while she's not here. Last week, Cheryl baptized someone in Ghana. It's the first baptism that she's been able to do. But she baptized a 12-year-old boy named Christopher. I've got pictures of him coming up out of the water. And a big old smile on his face. And, and she texted me. She said, this is amazing. I never expected anything like this. She didn't go there for him. She went there for several other reasons. He just happened to be a long part of the deal. And she ends up baptizing him. And that was a good day. She also has been texting me that she's more tired right now than she's ever been in her entire life. But it's a weariness that brings about an eternal satisfaction. That the weeds don't keep growing. That's the kind of work that, that God calls us to. A work that is valuable. A work that is ongoing. Look over at, at chapter 3 verse 13. Paul says, but as for you brethren, do not grow weary of doing good. Don't grow weary of doing good. Keep going. Keep working. Put yourself to the task. Don't sit back. Press on. Reach out. We might even say stem the tide, as we talked about last week. Press into this world and fight the good fight. That's the good work He's talking about. The good work of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, I want to ask you this question. How aware is God of your good work? You think he's paying attention? You think it ever kind of gets by him or he misses it? Turning your Bibles all the way back to Numbers chapter 7. Again, keeping your finger there in 2 Thessalonians, now chapter 2. Numbers chapter 7. This is a great chapter. It is also, I want to point out to you, the second longest chapter in the Bible. 89 verses. There's only one chapter longer. This one, Numbers chapter 7, verse 1. Let's just read a little bit of it. okay? Now on the day that Moses had finished setting up the tabernacle, and if you're not there, it's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers. It's the fourth book. Okay, Chapter 7, verse 1. On the day that Moses had finished setting up the tabernacle, he anointed it and consecrated it with all its furnishings and the altar and all its utensils. He anointed them and consecrated them also. And then the leaders, or some of your Bibles might say the princes of Israel, the heads of their fathers' household households, made an offering. They were the leaders of the tribes. They were the ones who were over-the-numbered men. When they brought their offering before the Lord, six covered carts and twelve oxen, a cart for every two of the leaders and an ox for each one, then they presented them before the tabernacle. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Accept these things from them, that they may be used in the service of the tent of meeting, and you shall give them to the Levites, to each man according to his service. Verse 6. So Moses took the carts and the oxen and gave them to the Levites. Two carts and four oxen he gave to the sons of Gershon, according to their service, and four carts and eight oxen he gave to the sons of Merari, according to their service, under the direction of Ithamar the son of Aaron the priest. But he did not give any to the sons of Kohath because theirs was the service of the holy objects which they carried on the shoulder. Verse 10. The leaders offered the dedication offering for the altar when it was anointed. So the leaders offered their offering before the altar and then the Lord said to Moses, let them present their offering, one liter each day for the dedication of the altar. And it began. Twelve days, one liter per day began to bring his offering Verse twelve. Now the one who presented his offering on the first day was Nachshan, the son of Aminadab of the tribe of Judah, and his offering was one silver dish whose weight was one hundred and thirty shekels, one silver bowl of seventy shekels according to the shekel of the sanctuary, both of them full of fine flour mixed with oil for a grain offering and one gold pan of ten shekels full of incense one bull and one ram and one male lamb one year old for a burnt offering one male goat for a sin offering and for the sacrifice of the peace offerings two oxen, five rams, five male goats five male lambs, one year old this was the offering of Nachshan, the son of Aminadab. I love this, this is devotional reading here verse 18 on the second day Natanel, the son of Zuar, leader of Issachar, presented an offering. He presented as his offering one silver dish, whose weight was 130 shekels, one silver bowl of 70 shekels, according to the shekel of the sanctuary. Both of them pulled a fine flour mixed with oil for a grain offering. One gold pan of ten shekels full of incense. One bull, one ram, one male lamb. One year old for a burnt offering. One male goat for a sin offering. And for the sacrifice of peace offerings, two oxen, five rams, five male goats, five male lambs, one year old. This was the offering of Netanel the son of Zuar. On the third day, it was Eliab, son of Helan, the leader of the sons of Zebulun. Is Rick going to read the whole thing? (laughs) Because I looked ahead and, and I've noticed that it's just the same thing over and over and over and over. They're all named. You see in verse 30, Eliezer, the son of Shadur, leader of the sons of Reuben. Verse 36, on the fifth day, Shalumiel, the son of Juri sedai the leader of the children of Simeon. You look down on verse 42, and this is the sixth day, Eliasaph, son of Jewel, leader of the sons of Gad. Verse 48, on the seventh day it was Elishema, the son of Amihud, leader of the sons of Ephraim. On the eighth day, verse 54, it was Gamaliel, the son of Penazur, leader of the sons of Manasseh. Verse 60, on the ninth day, it was Abidon, the son of Gideonai, leader of the sons of Benjamin. Verse 66, on the 10th day, Ahiazer, the son of Amishaddai, leader of the sons of Dan. Verse 72, on the 11th day, it was Pagiel, the son of Ahan, the leader of the sons of Asher. Verse 78, on the 12th day, on the 12th day, it was Ahirah, the son of Anan, leader of the sons of Naphtali. verse 84, this was the dedication offering for the altar from the leaders of Israel when it was anointed. Twelve silver, dish, silver dishes, twelve silver bowls, twelve gold pans, each silver dish weighing 130 shekels, each for, and each bowl 70. And all the silver of the utensils was 2,400 shekels, according to the shekel of the sanctuary. The twelve gold pans full of incense, weighing 10 shekels apiece, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, all the gold pans, 120 shekels. All the oxen for the burnt offering, twelve bowls, all the rams, twelve All the male rams, one year old, and their grain offering, twelve. And the male goats for a sin offering, twelve. All the oxen for the sacrifice of peace offerings, twenty-four bulls. All the rams, sixty. The male goats, sixty. The male lambs, one year old, sixty. Are you kidding me? Eighty-nine verses talking about what these twelve leaders of the twelve tribes of Israel gave. And curiously, every single one of them, if you read and compare, gave the exact same amount talk about repetitive and think about this you hold in your hands the inspired word of God this book this is His word which means that every word within is intentional that God wanted everything said that was said here there were other events in history that might have been more exciting might have been more heart touching more encouraging for us that are not even included in the Scriptures. And yet he spends 89 verses in the second longest chapter in all the Bible talking about the offering of the 12 leaders of the 12 tribes of Israel. Why would God spend such precious parchment on such a long ledger of labor? Because the good work that you do matters to Him. I don't think Numbers chapter 7 is really for us as much as it's for the Lord. Recognizing what these leaders gave. Honoring what they gave. Aware of what they gave for the tabernacle. And so he recorded in his word forever what these 12 leaders gave. He named them twice each. And then talks about their offering. Because God does not forget what you do for Him. Your good work matters to the Lord. You know, at the bridge, we don't track your personal giving. That is, we don't sit around as as shepherds, as leaders, as pastors, and look at what individuals give and think, okay, I really need to preach this message for so-and-so because they're not, you know, they're really slacking. The only people who see what anybody here gives are those who are doing it for tax purposes or our bookkeeper accounting for these things. But you know what? God knows exactly what you give. Okay, whoa, Rick just did a a left turn and now we're into the place of guilt and shame. (laughs) Let me repeat. God keeps perfect records of your tithes and your offerings. You may forget. Other people may not know. But God knows exactly what we get. Number seven is proof of that. Oh no. He knows. Oh no. He's aware. Hey, listen. Listen. He doesn't keep track to shame what you did not do, but to remember what you do. Hebrews chapter 6 verse 10 says God is not unjust so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown toward His name in having ministered and in still ministering to the saints. He remembers. And Paul prays for the bread of your work. The bread of your good work. Whether anyone else remembers or not, God remembers, and this is what Paul is praying for. Jesus said in Matthew 10.42, Whoever in the name of a disciple gives to one of these little children even a cup of cold water to drink, truly I say to you, he shall not lose his reward. God remembers. John says in 1 John 3.18, Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and in truth. So God remembers your good work. And Paul now prays for the bread of good work. By the strength and comfort of the Spirit, that our work would be good. But that's not all he prays in this second prayer, is it? He also prays for the Word. Every good work and word, but get this, word isn't what you say, it is still what you do. What do you mean? The bread of good work is also the bread of the word. Note this, word is logos. Paul prays for the bread of the logos to be in you to be in your life. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 4 verse 4, quoting Deuteronomy chapter 8 verse 3, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Hey, Numbers chapter 7, second longest chapter in the entire Bible dealing with the work and the offering and the giving of the sons of Israel. The longest chapter, Bible students, do you know what the longest chapter is in the Bible? Psalm what? 119 Psalm 119, there's some of you going, well I didn't know that, (laughs) don't worry God will remember. (laughs) Psalm 119 is the longest book in the Bible, it contains 176 verses in all, divided by all 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet, and it's all about the word. So it's interesting to me that here Paul is praying for every good work and word and what we learn we realize that according to what's important by weight in the scriptures number 7 the second longest chapter is all about the work of the Israelites and Psalm 119 is all about the word of God. Psalm 119, verse 9, How can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to Your Word. Verse 11, Your Word I have treasured in my heart that I may not sin against You. Verse 89, Forever, O Lord, Your Word is settled in heaven. Verse 105, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Verse 107, revive me, O Lord, according to your word. 148, my eyes anticipate the night watches that I may meditate on your word. And 160, the sum of your word is truth and every one of your righteous ordinances is everlasting. Your word. The Word of God in you is what produces the good work of God through you. And so we take in the Word, and this is what Paul is praying, a continual intake of the bread of the Word, even as there is an outflow of the good work, the bread of good work, the bread of the Word, the bread of satisfaction. This is just good eaten. And James 1.22 tells us, Prove yourselves doers of the Word, not merely hearers. Listen, who delude themselves. Don't sit here week in and week out and hear the Word and do nothing with it because if you do that, you are delusional. The power, the efficacy of God's Word bears fruit and will be known and seen in you and it may be character changes in you the way you treat other people, the fact that you keep finding the gospel on your lips as you are around other people, the good work and the good word. But Paul is still knocking. So we come to the third prayer. And the last two prayers are very short. But they are prayers nonetheless and they are equally potent. Paul now requests a third loaf for his traveling friends. Another marbled loaf because it has two aspects to it. But this bread is a bread that consumes the consumer. It consumes the consumer. Verse 5 of chapter 3. May the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the steadfastness of Christ. I love that. Sheriff, when we read through that on, on Wednesday night a couple of weeks back. I just love that. May the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God, into the steadfastness of Christ. That's where He's leading us. That's what Paul prays. Oh, please bring the bread, the loaf, if you will, of love and long-suffering. The loaf of love and long-suffering. 1 Corinthians 13, you know the verse, verse 13, Now faith, hope, and love abide these three, but the greatest of these is love to be directed, get this by Jesus into the love of God. That simply means both to love God and to love like God. May this be our lives. Loving God and loving like God. Jesus said John 14:15 if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Because that's the natural outflow of a heart that loves God. The more you love God, the more you will love like God. It's not the other way around. I try to love like God to make myself love God. No, as you love Him, as you pursue Him, as you seek Jesus, you become more like Jesus. And you begin to love the way He does. The commandments of Christ are observable simply in how you love others. And ultimately, if we don't love God... And I shared this also a couple of weeks ago. If we don't love God, can we really say we know Him? If we don't love like God, can we really claim to belong to Him? John said in 1 John 4, 8, "...the one who does not love does not know God, for God is love." By this the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world, so that we might live through Him." Live through Him. Live into the love of God. Life's directed into the love of God. God's love is a bread that consumes. That the more you love God, the more you are consumed by the love of God. And so is the other focus of this prayer. Loving God, but also may we be directed into the steadfastness of Christ. Why does He pair these two? The steadfastness of Christ and the love of God. These are not random thoughts just popping out of Paul's head. These are Holy Spirit directed prayers. And he says, may you be directed into the love of God and the steadfastness of Christ. The King James translation is the patient waiting for Christ. So how are these two connected? Steadfastness, patient waiting is that Greek word hopamone. And it means to endure, to stand fast In the Greek world, it it literally meant a courageous endurance that defies evil. It is again that idea of stemming the tide. Refusing to run with the currents, but to defy sin and evil and wrongdoing. Loving God and holding fast, steadfast. Long-suffering is a good word for it. I call this the bread of love and long-suffering because the steadfastness of Christ came it takes us right back to the divine tension. I know, I've talked about this many times in the last couple of letters we've been reading. The divine tension. But we have to hear this. We have to be recalled to it. We have to be willing to live in it. The divine tension. That is loving for now, longing for then. Living to love Him and to see Him and to be with Him, but loving people in this world so much that we will be steadfast in our faith. Even if you're not knocking on doors, even if you're not on the corners preaching the gospel as people walk by. If you will be steadfast for the faith in how you're living your life. In what you do share with friends and family around you. If you will determine by the power of the Spirit of God to live a life of integrity that is unlike what we see in the world today. When you're willing to be forgiving where others would not forgive. When you're willing to live a life that reflects Jesus Christ in all things. Why would I do that? Because we need to be seen as disciples of Jesus. If we're not, we have no message. We are in the divine tension. Yes, Jesus is coming. I can't wait. Yes, Jesus is coming. And I have people I know who will not be saved if He comes today. Rick, I wish you would stop bringing that up. I can't. And we dare not stop thinking about those who are lost. We dare not just ignore the tough stuff and look forward to Jesus. It is both. It must be both. The love of God has a broken heart for the lost in this world. I cannot love God and not love the lost. I love that old phrase. I actually hate that old phrase because it's so convicting. But you only love God as much as the person you love the least. And so we are called to love Him, to look forward to His coming and yet to be steadfast until then, for the sake of those who don't know him. Listen, all these loaves that we're looking at this morning are nourishing. They're staples for, for a strong, for a satisfying, for a sustaining faith in Christ Jesus until he returns. And we've seen in these letters that, that we are to be looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, Titus 2.13. That's so much of the heart of First and 2 Thessalonians. And looking for His coming is the key to the satisfying life, the working and word-filled life, the loving and long-suffering life, these three loaves of bread for which Paul is knocking on the door. Final prayer verse 16 of chapter 3. Now may the Lord of peace Himself continually grant you peace in every circumstance. The Lord be with you all. May the Lord of peace Himself continually grant you peace in every circumstance. The Lord be with you all. This is almost not even another loaf that He's praying for as much as an ingredient in every loaf that we've looked at. Just call it baked in peace. Baked in peace. The Lord of peace Himself. Who is that? Well, that's Jesus. He is the Lord of peace. He is the Prince of peace. There will be no end to the increase of His government or of peace, Isaiah 9.7, on the throne of David, over His kingdom, to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. My friends, Jesus is zealous for peace. He is the one who brings the peace. He's the one who says, John 14.27, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. Why? Because Ephesians two fourteen tells us He Himself is our peace, baked in peace to the life of the follower of Jesus. Hey, are you troubled this morning? Are you fearful? This final prayer is that peace, note this, would be continual in every circumstance. Do you have that kind of peace? It's a constant flow. Unstoppable. And it is in every circumstance, which means it's not circumstantial. It's not a peace that happens when you're kicking your feet up and the fireplace is on and it's the late fall and all the tourists have gone home. And you're sitting back, sipping some coffee. Fire's crackling. It's cool outside. Ah. I love the fall. You know what I've realized? The fall goes away every year. This is a peace that is not circumstantial, it is a constant in our lives. Do you have. This peace. Listen, if this peace came naturally, Paul wouldn't be praying for it. If this peace was just kind of part and parcel the way we live our lives, Paul wouldn't be banging on the door asking that the Lord of peace would grant peace in every circumstance and continually. But get this. This is not a prayer for peace. It's a prayer that the Lord of peace would continually grant peace in every circumstance. Well, Okay, what's the difference? Listen, it's not the peace He gives, it's the peace He is. You can ask Jesus to give you all the peace you want, or you can walk with Jesus and have peace constantly. To be in Jesus is to know peace. To walk with Him is to be in a position that is inherently peaceful. The way He grants peace continually is by being with you and being in you. Even as Paul then concludes that prayer, the Lord be with you all. And so with that in mind, the Apostle finishes out the letter as he always does. Look at verse 18. Not a prayer, but a conclusion to 2 Thessalonians. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. And if it is... Guess what? We don't have to go begging for bread. We don't have to be pounding on the door all hours of the night. You see, God is not a father who's trying to sleep. He is not a father who's unaware or out of touch or exhausted or annoyed when we knock. In giving this prayerable, Jesus gives an example of someone being persistent in prayer. But that's the point. Persistency. The point is not that God is like the man in the house who's trying to get some rest and whose neighbor is annoying him. God is not annoyed when you come to Him. God is not annoyed by your prayers. No matter how constant they may be, no matter how insignificant they may seem, God is not annoyed by your prayers. He welcomes, He invites your prayers. In fact, Jesus says in Luke eleven nine, 9, I say to you, ask... And it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be open to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, to him who knocks, it will be open. There are times where the kids are outside playing and the front door is closed and, and perhaps it's not it's locked. And they come, I see them coming toward the door, and I'll run over to the door, and I'll grab the handle and I'll wait, and I'll look at kind it of through the window. And as soon as they go to knock, pull open the door, and they go falling into the house, you know. And that is exactly what happens when we come to the Lord in prayer. We come with our request, and he's standing at the door. He's ready to open before we've even rapped on the door. We think we we need to we need to get God's attention now. We need to talk about this because he needs to be engaged in these things. He already is. He is already there before they ask, the Bible says. I will answer. Lord, thank You that You do not make us beggars, but You make us sons and daughters who can bring everything to our Father. In Jesus' name, Amen.